Chapter Eleven of One Hundred Years in Yosemite by Carl Parcher Russell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eleven: Guardians of the Scene, Part One. In the body of Indian fighters who first entered Yosemite Valley, there appears to have been but one man who sensed the possibilities of public good to be derived from the amazing place just discovered. A year prior to the entry of the Mariposa Battalion, L. H. Bunnell, in climbing the trail from Ridley's Ferry, Bagby, to Bear Valley, had descried in the eastern mountains an immense cliff, which apparently loomed column-like to the very summit of the range. He looked upon the awe-inspiring sight with wonder and admiration, and turned from it with reluctance to resume the search for coveted gold. When, on March 25, 1851, Bunnell stood at Inspiration Point with other members of Savage's command, and gazed upon the extravagance of natural wonders, he recognized the immensity of rock which had, the previous year, astonished him from afar. He writes, Haze hung over the valley, light as gossamer, and clouds partially dimmed the higher cliffs and mountains. This obscurity of vision but increased the awe with which I beheld it, and as I looked, a peculiar exalted sensation seemed to fill my whole being, and I found my eyes in tears with emotion. He withdrew from the trail and stationed himself on a projecting rock where he might contemplate all that was spread before him. Major Savage, bringing up the rear of the column, brought him out of his soliloquy in time to join the battalion in its descent to the floor of the valley. The party that night discussed the business of naming the valley as they sat about their first campfire near the foot of Bridalvale Fall. Bunnell comments, It may appear sentimental, but the coarse jokes of the careless and the indifference of the practical sensibly jarred my more devout feelings while this subject was a matter of general conversation. As if a sacred subject had been ruthlessly profaned, or the visible power of deity disregarded. Bunnell's later discussion with residents of the Mariposa Hills, and his very tangible evidence in the form of personal funds expended in the Coulterville Trail to Yosemite, indicate that he was the first to strive for public recognition of the assets available in the new scenic wonderland. Other men of the region were understandably slow to develop aesthetic appreciation for that which only thrilled and produced no gold. By 1855, rumor and conjecture regarding the mysteries of the valley had created sufficient interest among the old residents and the many newcomers in the mining camps to prompt fascination in J. M. Hutchings and his story when he returned to Mariposa after his first scenic banqueting under Yosemite Falls. With the publication of the Hutchings articles and the heirs' drawings, curiosity may be said to have become general, and the trek to the valley was started. The entire mountain region was, of course, public domain, and though it had not been surveyed, it was generally conceded that preemption claims could be made upon it. Homesteaders were establishing themselves in numerous mountain valleys above the gold region, and such squatting was done with the assent of state and federal officers. It is hardly surprising that some local aspirants laid claim to parts of Yosemite Valley. The company that expected to develop a water project in 1855 was apparently the first to attempt to establish rights. 
Then came the series of would-be hotel owners whose activities have been described. James C. Lamon was a mountaineer who came to Yosemite in 1859 and aided in the building of the Cedar Cottage. While so engaged, he established himself in the upper end of the Yosemite Valley, and there developed the first bona fide homestead by settlement. For many years, his log cabin was a picturesque landmark in the valley, and today two orchards near Camp Curry serve as reminders of his pioneering. With the advent of the 60s, California began to recognize the aesthetic value of some of her mountain features. The acclaim of leaders from the east and the expressed wonder of notables from abroad played a part in the development of a state pride in the beauties of Yosemite, and gradually it became apparent that only poor statesmanship would allow private claims to affect an area of such worldwide interest. On March 28, 1864, Senator John Connors of California introduced in the U.S. Senate a bill to grant to the state of California tracts of land embracing the Yosemite Valley and the Mariposa Grove of Big Trees. On May 17, his bill was reported out of committee. On the occasion of the debate which followed, Senator Connors entered into the record of american conservation the first evidences of national consciousness of park values as we conceive of them today he started the long train of legislative acts which have given the united states the world's greatest and most successful system of national parks it is a fact of course that the senate action of eighteen sixty four did not create a national park but it did give federal recognition to the importance of natural reservations in our cultural scheme and charged california with the responsibility of preserving and presenting the natural wonders of the yosemite senator Connors explained to the senate that it was the purpose of his bill to commit them yosemite valley and the mariposa grove of big trees to the care of the authorities of that state for their constant preservation that they may be exposed to public view and that they may be used and preserved for the benefit of mankind the plan of preservation comes from gentlemen of fortune of taste and of refinement the bill was prepared by the commissioner of the general land office who also takes a great interest in the preservation both of the yosemite valley and the big trees grove the bill was passed by the senate on may seventeen referred to the house committee on public lands on june second debated and passed by the house on june twenty nine and signed by president lincoln on july one eighteen sixty four these deliberations which designated the first scenic reservation for free public use were consummated under the stress of waging war in order to eliminate friction and delays in the operation of legislative machinery proponents of the yosemite bill secured its passage without recognition of the private claims made by yosemite settlers Lehman, clearly a bona fide homesteader, Hutchings, who had a short time before the passage of the act purchased the upper hotel property, Black, the owner of Black's Hotel, and Ira Folsom, interested in the Leidig property, pressed their claims and involved the new state park in prolonged litigation. The State Park Act provided that the Yosemite Grant and the Mariposa Big Trees should be managed by a board of commissioners, of whom the governor of the state was to be one. 
On September 28, 1864, three months after the grant was made, Governor F.K. Lowe proclaimed that trespassing upon the tracts involved must desist. His Board of Yosemite Commissioners was appointed in the same proclamation. Frederick Law Olmsted, even then an accomplished landscape architect, was made chairman of the board. As Brockman, 1946, page 106, has revealed in his article on Homestead, the chairman was also the first administrative officer of the Yosemite Grant. Olmsted's statement of 1890 substantiates this fact. I had the honor to be made chairman of the first Yosemite Commission, and in that capacity to take possession of the valley for the state, to organize and direct the survey of it, and to be the executive of various measures taken to guard the elements of its scenery from fires, trespassers, and abuse. In the performance of these duties, I visited the valley frequently, established a permanent camp in it, and virtually acted as its superintendent. Legal acceptance of the gift could not be made until the next session of the state legislature. On April 2, 1866, the necessary provisions for administration were secured. The Board of Commissioners made the best possible selection of a guardian, the Yosemite pioneer Galen Clark, and invited the settlers of the valley to vacate their holdings. J. M. Hutchings, as might be expected, was wrathy. It is probable that James Lehman, after eight years of permanent residence on his land, saw no justice in the act. The other claimants held out for what might be in it. Hutchings and Lehman refused to surrender their property, and a test suit was brought against Hutchings, which was decided in his favor. This was carried to the Supreme Court of the state, and then to the Federal Supreme Court. In these last actions, the commissioners were sustained. That Hutchings and Lehman were deserving of consideration and remuneration cannot be denied, but millions of Americans are today indebted to the Board of Commissioners who pursued the case to a settlement favorable to the people. Private titles of the type held by the Yosemite Valley settlers would have been disastrous to all administration in the years that were to come. On the other hand, Hutchings and Lehman were deserving of certain sympathy. No man had done more than J. M. Hutchings to call attention to the fact that the Yosemite was a wonderland eminently worthy of the distinction bestowed upon it by the state. For a decade prior to the creation of the state park, he had devoted himself to disseminating knowledge on its charming realities. Much of this was done through his California magazine and the lithographic reproductions of the heir's drawings. Some of it was accomplished with his volume, Scenes of Wonder, which ran through several editions. The many published testimonials of his worth as guide and informant while operating his Hutchings House in Yosemite Valley indicate that his efforts to engender a public love for the place were not spared even after his difficulties arose with the state. And finally, during the ten-year fight for reimbursement, he lectured throughout the country, bringing home to the dwellers in eastern cities the fact that a phenomenally beautiful area in California was worthy of their visit. Some of the manuscripts of these eastern lectures are possessed by the Yosemite Museum. Their text reveals none of the commercialism and selfishness with which Hutchings sometimes has been charged. 
the earnest efforts which hutchings had expended in interesting the public in yosemite had not failed to create an interest in him as well the court had refused further consideration of the claims of the settlers but the state legislature influenced by public feeling and the expressed approval of the yosemite commissioners appropriated sixty thousand dollars to compensate the four claimants of this, Hutchings received 24000 Lehman 12000 Black 13000 Folsom 6000 and the remaining 5000 was returned to the state treasury. Because of this prolonged litigation, the commissioners did not secure full control of the grant until 1875. To what extent such troubles would dissipate the best directed efforts of a board of managers of any business can well be imagined. Further difficulties developed when road privileges were granted. The state legislature failed to sustain the position of the commissioners in the matter of exclusive rights for a road on the north side of the valley, and again a controversy arose which directed heated criticism upon the management of the state park. Public hostility alternated with general indifference. The state failed to provide adequate funds with which to accomplish the important work before the commissioners, and the lack of a well-defined policy handicapped the administration to a point of ruin. In 1880, a new law removed the first board and appointed a new one. The next decade saw important developments take place in the park, but policies adopted were sure to displease someone or some faction. Criticism still prevailed. Gradually, the seethings of the press brought about the development of intelligent public interest in Yosemite affairs. Indifference was replaced by discriminating attention, and Yosemite administration arrived in a new era. In these pages, not enough has been said about John Muir. His contributions to the preservation of Yosemite National Park, to the determination of scientific facts regarding it, and to public understanding of its offerings, place him in the front rank of conservationists who have been instrumental in saving representative parks of the American heritage. The role he played as explorer, researcher, interpreter, and defender of the public interest in the Yosemite may well become the subject of another book of Muriana. However, at this juncture, it is only possible to relate him rather inequitably to the field of Yosemite administrative history. John Muir arrived in Yosemite for the first time in 1868. Intent upon making deliberate studies of all that fascinated him, he determined to remain a resident of the Yosemite region. In order to do so, he attached himself to a sheep ranch. He gave the first winter to work on the Foothill Ranch and the next summer to herding in the Yosemite Sierra. With the intimate acquaintance so made with sheep and their ways, he was destined to create a wave of public interest in Yosemite that would eclipse all former attentions and revolutionize the administrative scheme. For eight years after his first Sierra experience, John Muir rambled over his range of light. He tarried for some time in Yosemite Valley and was employed by J.M. Hutchings at times to operate a sawmill which Muir immortalized merely by inhabiting it. Some impression of his first employment in Yosemite Valley and his early outlook upon the Yosemite scene may be gained from these paragraphs of his memoirs published by Badi. 
i had the good fortune to obtain employment from mr hutchings in building a sawmill to cut lumber for cottages that he wished to build in the spring from the fallen pines which had been blown down in a violent windstorm a year or two before my arrival thus i secured employment for two years during all of which time i watched the varying aspects of the glorious valley arrayed in its winter robes the descent from the heights of the booming outbounding avalanches like magnificent waterfalls the coming and going of the noble storms the varying songs of the falls the growth of frost crystals on the rocks and leaves and snow the sunshine sifting through them in rainbow colors climbing every sunday to the top of the walls for views of the mountains in a glorious array along the summit of the range and so forth i boarded with mr hutchings family but occupied a cabin that i built for myself near the hutchings winter home this cabin i think was the handsomest building in the valley and the most useful and convenient for a mountaineer from the yosemite creek near where it first gathers its beaten waters at the foot of the fall i dug a small ditch and brought a stream into the cabin entering at one end and flowing out the other with just current enough to allow it to sing and warble in low sweet tones delightful at night while i lay in bed the floor was made of rough slabs nicely joined and embedded in the ground in the spring the common terrace ferns pushed up between the joints of the slabs two of which growing slender like climbing ferns on account of the subdued light i trained on threads up the sides and over my windows in front of my writing desk in an ornamental arch dainty little tree frogs occasionally climbed the ferns and made fine music in the night and common frogs came in with the stream and helped to sing with the hylas and the warbling tinkling water my bed was suspended from the rafters and lined with libocedrus plumes altogether forming a delightful home in the glorious valley at a cost of only three or four dollars and i was loath to leave it when he was not running hutchings mill he was making lonely trips of discovery or guiding visitors above the valley walls perhaps muir knew of the use he would make of the natural history data he was gathering but few of his associates sensed the fact that he would soon make the nation quicken with new views of yosemite values he first made his influence felt in the early seventies when he began publishing on yosemite in journals and periodicals his material awakened responses everywhere on february five eighteen seventy six he published an article in the sacramento record union which was one of the initial steps in his forceful appeal to america to save the yosemite high country from the devastation of sheep and the incendiary fires of sheep herders it is likely that few who today enjoy the yosemite high sierra realize that sheep hoofed locusts were responsible for the creation of yosemite national park the people of california awakened to the danger by the warnings of muir and others attempted to secure an enlargement of the state park selfish local interests frustrated the plan in eighteen eighty nine john muir allied himself with the century magazine and a plan was launched which was designed to arouse a public sentiment that could not be shunted muir produced the magic writings and robert underwood johnson editor of the century secured the support of influential men in the east 
on october one eighteen ninety a law was enacted which set aside an area larger than the present park as reserved forest lands within this reserve were the state-controlled yosemite and mariposa grove grants the reactions of residents of the regions adjacent to the new national park to this legislation was typical of the period citizens of the counties affected could not foresee the coming of unbroken streams of automobile traffic which eventually would bring millions of dollars to their small marts of trade the thought of losing some thousands of acres of taxable land caused county seats to seethe with unrest the local press painted pictures of dejected prospects and near ruin. The following summary of a lengthy wail from a contemporary paper reveals the fears that prevailed. Let us summarize the results of our analysis. On the one side, we have 932,600 acres of land taken away from the control and use of the people at large and of the people of Mariposa, Tuolumne, Mono, and Fresno counties in particular for the ostensible purpose of preserving timber, mineral deposits, and natural curiosities or wonders within said reservation, for whose benefit the act does not say, but presumably for the benefit of tourists on the other hand we find that the avowed object of preserving forest appears to be only a false pretense to cover up the real object of the scheme whatever it may be that to preserve mineral deposits will prevent untold treasures from being employed in industry and commerce and prevent the employment of thousands for many years to come in the exploration of these mineral deposits that to preserve natural curiosities and wonders it is not necessary to fling away nearly a million acres of land when all that is necessary can be accomplished by attaching to each wonder as much land as through natural formation contributes in any measure towards its maintenance that if on the one hand these claims are respected it will condemn hundreds of american settlers to poverty if on the other hand these claims are bought out it will entail an expense of many millions on the country whilst the claimants themselves will never receive anything like the amount their properties would be worth in the course of time if this matter of the country is left to its own development without government interference and all the settlements now existing will be left to fall into decay and ruin or will have to be worked by a system of tenantry a curse as contemporary history shows which ought never to be allowed to take root in our country the preservation of the full watershed of the yosemite valley is not only a legitimate but a desirable object the same holds good with the hetch hetchy valley or any other grand work of nature every alienation of land beyond this is of evil this local feeling resulted in immediate attempts to change the park boundaries the first attempt was frustrated largely through the efforts of the sierra club this organization came into existence shortly after yosemite national park was created and has always been one of the most important agencies that have promoted the safety of yosemite treasures its publication the sierra club bulletin which first appeared in eighteen ninety three is a rich source of yosemite history for twenty-two years john muir was the president of the club 
his vim in leaping to the defense of the great natural preserve was no less than had been his vigor in working for its creation muir aided in the preservation of national monuments as well in early may nineteen o three theodore roosevelt then president visited yosemite via raymond and the mariposa grove governor george c pardee benjamin ide wheeler president of the university of california and john muir were among those who interpreted the scene for the president conservation matters were discussed by muir and the legislation which was to become famous as the antiquities act of nineteen o six was given some definition at this time it was truly an important occasion chief among the sierra club defenders of yosemite who have carried on since the death of muir is william e colby he served forty-four years as secretary of the organization two years as president and is now as a director a frequently sought source of counsel he led the club's summer outings for more than three decades throughout this period colby has unceasingly built the sierra club's prestige in the field of conservation for the past six years he has served as a member of the yosemite advisory board and has been in close touch with past and current park problems the failure of the national government to provide funds with which to extinguish private claims within the park involved the administration in difficulties which are being felt even yet by 1904, relations between administrative officers and the large number of owners of private holdings had become so strained that legal action was imperative. Boundary revisions were required. Major Hiram C. Chittenden headed the commission appointed to investigate possible boundary changes. Upon the recommendation of this commission, large areas on the east and west were lopped off. In 1906, a tract on the southwest was cut off, and since that time, small changes have been rather numerous. Private lands still exist within the park and constitute an ever-present source of trouble. From the first, the control of Yosemite National Park has been vested in the Secretary of the Interior. Immediately after the passage of the Act of Creation, military units were detailed to take charge of all National Park lands. The state retained its plan of administration of the original Yosemite grant, and so came about the dual control which for 16 years colored the Yosemite administration with petty misunderstandings and hindered progress in the maintenance of the entire region. Galen Clark's old ranch, Wawona, became headquarters for the acting superintendent of the Federal Preserve. From this eccentric hub, patrols of cavalrymen were sent into the unbounded wilderness area of the new preserve. A trail system and accurate maps did not exist. One of the first undertakings of the early superintendents was to make the rough country accessible by horse trail. The topography was studied and a good map was prepared. Following the practice established in Yellowstone National Park, patrolling stations were established, and the United States Army had the safety of Yosemite's fauna and flora fairly within its keeping. Since pioneer days, sheep and cattlemen had enjoyed unrestricted use of the excellent range which was now forbidden them. Naturally, they were reluctant to abandon it. Their trespass was the most formidable threat with which the troopers were confronted, and concerted ingenious work was necessary to expel the intruders. 
when the first culprits were taken into custody it was found that no law provided for their punishment congress had failed to provide a penalty for the infraction of park rules nothing daunted the superintendents put the captured herders under arrest and escorted them across the most mountainous regions to a far boundary of the park there they were liberated the herders sheep were driven out of the reserve at another distant point by the time the herder had located his animals his losses usually were so great as to represent a more severe punishment than could have been meted out by the court had the law applied several years of this practice caused neighboring ranchers to keep their animals out of the forbidden territory captain abram epperson wood was the first superintendent with detachments from the fourth cavalry he arrived in the park on may nineteenth eighteen ninety one and continued in charge until his death in eighteen ninety four each year the troopers came in april or may and withdrew in the fall during the winter two civilian rangers attempted to patrol the area with such inadequate winter protection it is small wonder that poachers grew to feel that the wildlife of the reserve was their legitimate prey it was not until eighteen ninety six in fact that a determined effort was made to keep firearms out of the park at any time of the year for twenty-three years the department of the interior continued to call upon the war department for assistance in administering yosemite national park eighteen army officers took their turn at the helm some of them assumed leadership after some years of yosemite experience as subordinate officers others were placed in command with no previous service in the park lieutenant later colonel harry c benson and major w w forsyth were perhaps the most distinguished of the superintendents benson was certainly more than a superintendent he was an explorer map-maker trail-builder fish-planter and nemesis of the sheepmen among the subordinate officers and enlisted men a number left their mark by way of accomplishments n f mcclure and milton f davis are remembered for their explorations and excellent map-making william f breeze and w r smedberg worked with mcclure and benson in stocking the headwaters of the yosemite rivers with trout a arndt pioneered in exploration of some of the northern sections of the park many others in the military organizations are remembered in place names throughout the yosemite high sierra yosemite was fortunate in having within its national park service personnel one man gabriel sovelewski who pioneered with these early units and who was acting superintendent of the park in nineteen o eight nineteen o nine and again in nineteen fourteen for thirty-five years mr sovelewski was actively engaged in caring for yosemite an unpublished manuscript on his national park service experiences is preserved in the yosemite museum within it he comments upon the yosemite work of united states troops national parks in california and yosemite especially owe much to the late colonel h c benson no one who has not participated in these strenuous years of hard riding and incessant fighting of natural and human obstacles can ever realize the need for indomitable spirit and unselfish devotion to a cause that existed during those first years in yosemite national park 
Sheep and cattle overran the country. They were owned by men who knew every foot of the terrain. They were ordered to eliminate them. There were few or no trails, and maps did not exist. Reliable guides were unobtainable, and we had more than a thousand square miles to cover. Officers with detachments set out upon patrols that would keep them away from our base of supplies for thirty days at a time. Many times rations were short, and sixteen to twenty hours of action per day, covering sixty miles in the saddle, was not unusual. Constant hammering at the offending cattlemen continued for several years, and at last they were convinced that they must vacate the territory set aside for national park purposes. The would-be poachers and the entire countryside were taught a moral lesson which still has its effect today. Some of the present-day administrative problems are made easier because of the foundation laid in those early years of the park's existence. The duplication of effort and expense, which resulted from the anomaly of state and federal administration within the reserve, brought about controversies which finally caused many Californians to conclude that their Yosemite State Grant of 1864 might well be placed in the hands of the federal government to be managed by the same officers who control the surrounding national park. The Sierra Club and many civic organizations took the lead in urging recession. Not a few citizens felt that the proposed move was an affront to state pride. This group proved to be an obstacle, but was overcome in 1905, when the state legislature reseeded to the United States the Yosemite Valley and the Mariposa Big Tree Grove. A formal acceptance by Congress brought the Yosemite State Park to an end on August 1, 1906. Major Benson removed military headquarters from Camp A.E. Wood, Wawona, and Fort Yosemite came into existence on the site of the present Yosemite Lodge. For seven years, the administrative organization set up by the military continued to function. The succeeding superintendents found their responsibilities increased considerably. Other national parks were coming into existence, and a national conscience was beginning to recognize the value of wilderness preserves. In 1910, the American Civic Association had launched a campaign for the creation of a National Park Bureau. President Taft favored central administration of the parks, and bills were introduced creating such a bureau. Major William T. Littlebrandt was in command in Yosemite when Dr. Adolph C. Miller, a civilian, became assistant to Secretary Lane and was placed in charge of the national parks. The next year, troops did not come to Yosemite. Mark Daniels was made superintendent, and civilian employees undertook the work that had been done by the troopers. A few civilian rangers had assumed the care of the park each winter when troops were withdrawn. Archie O. Leonard had been the first of these, and he remained in the service when the administrative change was made. In 1914, park rangers came into existence under authorization of Secretary Lane. They patrolled the park as had the troopers, but unlike the troopers, they remained in touch with their problems throughout the year. End Chapter 11 Part 1